Hey, I'm Lauren and I'm super stoked to be in level two, but I am really sick of people complaining about the safety measures. I feel like sometimes the bigger picture is just more important than your personal circumstances, no matter how horrible they are. Come on, New Zealand, we can do this. It's not that long now. Kia ora, Lauren. Glad to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Indira Stewart. Welcome to the Coronavirus Podcast. Just a brief news update today before we get into our interview with a very special guest. There were zero new cases of COVID-19 yesterday, but our overall number of cases rose by four. Confused? Well, I'll let Director General of Health Ashley Bloomfield explain. Uh, These cases are people who returned to New Zealand from the Greg Mortimer cruise ship uh, 13th of April. Uh, and they had all tested positive for COVID-19 in Uruguay before they came back. They had been classified as under investigation while we were awaiting information from Uruguay to avoid them being double counted as part of the overall World Health Organization numbers. We've now confirmed with our counterparts in Uruguay that they did not report those cases, so we are. I should say all four of these people have recovered. So we have these four historical cases We are now adding them to the New Zealand total to add to the World Health Organisation total. I'm sure that is all very clear. I'm happy to answer questions on that later. But suffice to say, back to my original statement, there are no new cases to report, which is uh, encouraging. Now, the voice you just heard has become a very familiar one ever since this crisis began. The internet is full of Ashley Bloomfield memes, Ashley Bloomfield songs, even some Ashley Bloomfield merchandise, which has been sold with proceeds going to Women's Refuge. So for one of our last shows, we invited Dr Bloomfield onto the podcast to talk about his experience, and he very generously agreed. Kia ora, Dr Bloomfield. Thank you very much for the invitation to be part of the podcast series. It's wonderful. Well, thanks so much for uh, your time and your availability this morning. We, we really do appreciate it. And I know our listeners will be really looking forward to uh, hearing from you. We ha- we're going to take a little bit of a reflective look back at the last eight weeks. But we've, before we go there, because the Digital Diary app is being released tomorrow too, I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions about that, if that's okay. Sure, that's fine. Good as gold. So can you talk about its benefit in this crisis and how it's going to work? Well, the advantages of the Digital Diary app are that it's, uh, it's one additional tool in our sort of suite of tools that we have to help trace people if we need to. The mainstay of our contact tracing is still what we call shoe leather epidemiology. In other words, our, our workers out in our public health units getting on the phone often getting out and about to find people and talk with them and find out about their movements. But the role of apps uh, complements that and it is an opportunity for people to basically register their details and then to have messages pushed to them uh, through um, through the app if they may have been in contact with someone um, who has found to be a COVID case. And have you been able to test it out yourself? I've actually just loaded it on my phone yesterday and at this first release, which is the one that will be um, uh, made public tomorrow, the opportunity is there to uh, register your details. It has a QR code reader as well, which will be able to be used to, I guess, sign in um, to uh, venues, businesses that people are visiting. Uh, And then the intention is still also to keep looking at the opportunity for this possible Bluetooth information exchange technology, which a number of countries like Australia and Singapore have already um, got on their apps. Now, I just want to take, we'll go back uh, 
Gosh, it feels like so much has happened in the last eight to ten weeks. But we'd love to take a look back on what has happened. A lot has changed in our world here in New Zealand. And before the country went into lockdown, when you realised the nature of COVID-19, that it was a cluster-based virus as well, how did you feel about our country's level of preparedness back then and the pandemic plan that was in place back then? Well, I can say we we have got a really good thorough pandemic plan, and we've had experience with it. Of course, it was uh, developed after the uh, the 2009 swine flu uh, pandemic, and then it's been updated, and we've we've uh, tried it out. We it's it's used across government, and all government departments have their own um, bits to that plan, their own contribution to that plan. So I felt we had a good plan, and I I, I also know we've got really good people working in our public health units. I guess one of the things that um, sort of came to mind was if we were really heading into into a big outbreak or a pandemic, just being confident that we had enough capacity in our public health units was one of the things that was top of mind for me. And we started very early on to just check in with them and see what their capability and capacity was around contact tracing and found that actually we needed to ramp that up pretty quickly. I guess the key thing early on, though, was just having a really high, um, having our radar on a very high level as to what was happening around the world. And even when we set up our our first um, incident response team here in the ministry, you know, there were only a few hundred cases and I think about six deaths globally. Um, And we could just, we just wanted to be um, onto it really quickly because we knew that the situation could evolve rapidly and make sure that we were keeping a step ahead of it. Uh, one epidemiologist, Dr. Brian Cox from Otago University, has, has commented in a, a previous interview that New Zealand had no other choice but to go into a lockdown because it didn't have a pandemic plan that was fit enough. Was that the case? Well, a couple of thoughts on that. The first is um, we had a good, robust, and we still have a good, robust pandemic plan. But what became really obvious um, as this evolved and we saw what was happening in other countries was that the sequence of phases or stages in that pandemic plan was not the way to go. Uh, It talks about keep it out, stamp it out, and then once it starts to get a bit out of hand, you move into a manage it phase where you just sort of um, do the best you can. And what we could see from overseas was that, um, that countries that had gone down that route um, could we ended up with their health systems being overwhelmed. They ended up with high rates of infection and deaths, but also they ended up having to go into a lockdown anyway. So uh, I don't think it was a choice between a lockdown or lo- no lockdown. Um, in my mind, it became really clear that it was a choice between an early lockdown or a too late lockdown, and we went with the former. Was there ever a time, even during the lockdown, that you were particularly worried about our ability to flatten the curve and eliminate the virus? Well, of course, we once we went into lockdown, we knew it would have an effect, but that it wouldn't be immediate. So that first week or 10 days, we were really watching the case numbers. We knew that they would continue to grow and or be high, and they did through that first week to 10 days. And I guess it was that was the that was the time when we were really thinking, okay, we've done this, and if people do the right thing and abide by the 
by what's required of them under Alert Level 4, we will break the chain of transmission here. And I think until we got to that point where it started to turn, yes, I was, um, I was of course, very watchful and, of course, concerned because we wanted to make sure that the lockdown had the impact we were looking for, and sure enough, it did. So we, had, we, we did know that it would have that impact uh, because we had seen countries that had gone into lockdown before New Zealand. This is what happened. And I think the opportunity we had was doing it while we still had a relatively small number of cases. Um, and where we, we saw people actually were really willing to comply with and, and lean in on that alert level for response. I think that was what really stood us in good stead. And when you did see the tide slowly turning, the curve starting to flatten, what were you thinking? Well, that was a really good feeling um, because, uh, it, you know, the, the lockdown was a big, big decision to make and we knew it would have an impact on New Zealanders. We knew it would have an impact on economy, on, jo- on the economy, on jobs and on many aspects of our society. We were asking people uh, to not be able to go to funerals, to really disrupt their daily lives. So there was a lot at stake. So seeing the numbers start to come down, and I think that was encouraging not just for me and not just for those of us working in Wellington, but I think all New Zealanders took great heart from that, that actually the sacrifice, in a sense, that, that, that they were making was worth it. Absolutely. And, and the government didn't take on all your recommendations. Were there any in particular you feel that they should have or you felt that they should have taken on? Oh, look, um, the governments always try to make the best decisions, and I think um, even now um, uh, commentators in New Zealand and certainly internationally are looking at New Zealand's response and seeing that um, the government took really uh, early, bold, and as it's transpired, uh, good decisions. Um, one of the things there's been some publicity about was our views around, um, you know, making sure the border was really tight. And when we first went into lockdown, um, one of the things I was concerned about was we still did have a lot of people coming into the country uh, and they were going into self-isolation. And um, we subsequently put in place a process whereby they could go into supervised uh, managed, managed isolation in Auckland or, or in quarantine if they were sympath- uh, symptomatic. It took us a little while to get that in place. And, uh, and I guess one of the thoughts I had was that we could just um, hold flights coming into the country till we had everything ready to do that. Now, the government, as, as people know, decided not to do that, um, and their expectation was, and I think we delivered on that expectation, that we would get that in place really quickly, and we did. And then that, the border controls, of course, are really key pillar of our overall response and success to date. You mentioned a bit about international publicity. How, how comfortable do you feel about New Zealand being held up as a model country? Its response has been called world-leading. But how do you feel about the work that you and the government have done over the past few months? Well, um, our motivation was to do the best for New Zealanders and for New Zealand. Uh, We um, were very... um, a key part of our approach was to make sure we were looking around the world all the time at what was working in other countries. We were communicating very regularly with Australia and working closely with with them. We were looking at many of the um, East Asian and Southeast Asian countries to see how they were succeeding in some of their efforts. And of course we were only too willing to share information about our experience. 
So our motivation was to do the best for New Zealanders, and I think if other jurisdictions um, can look and see and learn from what we have done, I think that's real, really beneficial, and we're only too happy to share our experience um, with others around the world, and many people are asking to talk to us about what we've done. Um, the other, the other uh, comment I just want to make is give a really strong plug for our diplomats. Our Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade staff around the world have been absolutely fantastic from the start of this, providing us with great intelligence about what's been happening in other countries and if we've got questions they've just gone you know um, gone to great lengths to find out information for us and that's been a really key part of our our intelligence and our ability to then implement the right actions at the right time We've seen around the world uh, when countries have eased restrictions and then uh, faced a second wave. Uh, what are you feeling about our movement at Level 2 at the moment and our ability to manage uh, safety restrictions and the contact tracing? Yeah, so I'm very thoughtful about that and we are watching other countries that are easing as well. I think the advantage we have and perhaps the difference in New Zealand from other countries is in that respect we're more akin to um, to China which got down to very, very low numbers before it started to ease um, its restrictions there. And whilst they are seeing cases pop up, given the size of the country, they're very low numbers. Now that's in contrast to, say, European countries that are easing their restrictions now where they've still got quite... Um, high levels of ongoing infection in the community. Yes, they're lower than they were at the peak, but they still have got uh, actually got um, cases um, uh, appearing in the community, whereas we didn't want to start easing our restrictions till we were very confident that there was no obvious community transmission happening out there. And as each day goes by, the more and more confident we can get about that. The, the really important thing is not to be overconfident. We've just got to remain vigilant. Mm. And approaching Level 2, I'd really love to know, what were you looking forward to doing the most at Alert Level 2? Oh, look, um, a lot of things. Uh, I have to say, when we went into Alert Level 3 and I was able to get a takeaway coffee, that was, I, <laughs> I know many New Zealanders savoured that moment, that was fantastic. But look, you know, there's nothing like actually um, being able to get out and see your friends and wider family yeah. and connect. And I was just... Um, uh, you know, for me personally, it was amazing how much that just reduced my stress levels, just being able to see people and talk with them um, and do things with them. Um, not to say that I was in a stressful situation at home with my family. I've been you know, blessed with having all three of my children and my wife at home, and that's been a big part of being able to just um, you know, keep, my, uh, keep the stress levels at a reasonable level um, to, to keep on, you know, on top of my mental and, and physical well-being through this period. But being able to get out and see other people over the weekend was just was just so nice. Yeah, and I'm sure many New Zealanders can understand that too. And you know, the, the, this obviously the COVID-19 crisis and your public appearances daily has raised your profile quite a bit. It, and I wanted to quote something that former Prime Minister Geoffrey Palmer has said about you. He says, "It's a long time since a public servant has become so well known. How have you found your newfound fame?" Oh, uh, look, it's it's been um, sort of a little bit surreal and, and quite puzzling at times, and um, especially some of the merchandise which I've seen um, uh, around the place. And um, what I'm really <laughs> thrilled about is how much money that's raising for Women's Refuge, so I'm, I'm thrilled to see that. Yeah. Um, you know, the comment I made when I first got asked about this, and I said to my team, who, by the way, of course, I might be out there each day fronting the media standards, but there are hundreds of people around Wellington who are just working all sorts of hours to um, do what they love 
love doing, and that is look after New Zealanders. And, you know, the, the comment I made to my team was, um, all I'm doing is my job, and most of the time people don't know or notice what the public service does, but I think it's just been visible to them just how fortunate New Zealand is with its public service, and, um, uh, and that, you know, uh, has been a big part of the success of our response. And you've you've had a you know doing your job you've had a long extensive career in public health. We did find a few interesting things about you uh, before that career, though. You were head boy at Scots College. You were also ducks, a first fifteen captain as well. So a, an amazing, well-rounded student. But what made you decide to become a doctor? Oh, look, I'm a, just just one thing. I was the vice captain of first fifteen. I would hate to think that my my old <laughs> schoolmate Staffy Apostolakis, um, you know, wasn't um, didn't get named pro- appropriately as the captain. <laughs> oh, look, um, I I, uh, I in about fourth form as it was then, which must have been year ten. I did a trip to the hospital as part of a careers day, and uh, it just sort of clicked. And I thought, oh. Uh, you know, I'll give this a go, and and of course it meant working hard because then, like now, you needed to, um, you needed to have good grades to get into medical school. I dare say it's even harder now. Um, and then once I got to medical school, I just really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed clinical medicine. But uh, public health came along as an option, and I felt as I, I found as I went into that and started to do it, it really gelled with me. And then I ended up in Wellington in the public service, and and loved that as just as much. So it was a chance to sort of blend public service medicine and public health and uh, I've really just it's been something I've just thoroughly enjoyed. And as we're finally as we're slowly moving forward through this crisis we're rebuilding our economy and we're returning to some form of normality. Dr Bloomfield what message do you have for New Zealanders right now? Oh, well, my first message is to thank them. Uh, I, you know, one of the things that really struck me over the last few weeks has been the the um the extent to which uh, and how I've just been so impressed with how Kiwis have gotten behind this effort. It truly has been a team effort because we could give all the messages and do all the right thing here, but it relied on individuals and families and communities to also support and do the right thing, which they have. So it truly has been a team effort. And and I just want us to keep that. You know, that um, I was um, talking last night to someone, and really this is this is a World Cup campaign. It's not a single game. And, you know, we might be through the pool matches, but we've got to keep our focus. We've got to maintain our vigilance and, and we've got to understand that the best thing we can do to, to continue to do well here and to protect our country and to get our economy up and going again is to keep doing the basics well. Uh, and that is, you know, those, those core um, hygiene measures. And really critically, if you're not feeling well, don't go to work, don't go out and ring and get advice about the possibility of getting a test. Thanks so much, Dr. Bloomfield, for your time. We also want to say thank you to you too, uh, to all the work that you and your team have done during this time. We, we appreciate all your efforts. Before you go, I just wanted to ask, do, do you talk often with your counterparts overseas? Do you know uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci? Oh, look, I don't know Anthony Fauci, but of course I watch um, him uh, in the media and I, uh, I carefully watch my counterparts around the globe. I, I talk with my Australian counterpart uh, and um, and usually, of course, at the World Health Assembly, which is on at this right at the moment, actually, they're still um, uh, in session uh, in Geneva virtually at the moment. Normally at those meetings um, is where I, I meet up with counterparts and we, we swap notes, but of course we're now doing that virtually. So, yeah, that information exchange is really critical and I think Dr Fauci's done a fantastic job there in the States of really trying to help lead the response there. Thanks, Dr Bloomfield, for your time. Appreciate it. I know you have a busy schedule, so we'll let you go, but we appreciate your time. 
Thank you very much. It's been lovely to talk. Thanks so much, Dr Bloomfield. Before we go, our very last episode of the show is going to be a roundtable discussion with me and my producers who we've all become familiar with over the last few weeks. If you've got any questions you'd like to ask, please send them in. You can either do that through the RNZ Vox Pop app or by emailing our producer, William Ray, via william.ray, that's R-A-Y, at rnz.co.nz. Kia hau maru, ka kite anō, ia koe a pōpō. The Coronavirus Podcast is presented by me, Indira Stewart. It's produced by William Ray, Sonia Sly and Katie Gossett. Our sound engineer is Adrian Holley. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can subscribe to the Coronavirus Podcast anywhere and it's free. Just go to the Podcasts and Series page at rnz.co.nz. And while you're there, check out RNZ's daily news podcast, The Detail. They've relaunched this week and they're doing a deep dive into a new story every single day.